This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Matt Little. If you watch tennis, you might recognise his face. You aren't sure what he does, but you see him at the Grand Slam events as the cameras pivot to the player's team and family's seating. Maybe in the short VT played before Andy Murray, Britain's greatest ever player, comes onto centre court at Wimbledon. You see him on the same practice court chatting to Andy as he then disappears into the locker room. Matt Little is a world-renowned coach and he has been Andy Murray's strength and conditioning coach since 2007. In that time, so much has had to be faced. The joy of Grand Slam titles and Olympic gold. The despair of career-threatening injuries to Andy that just didn't seem like they would ever shift. If you do need reminding how fragile an athlete's career can be and how they need those around them to help them through those moments, then this is probably it. I met Matt when we were allowed to meet outdoors, socially distanced, so you will hear our conversation occasionally accompanied with the wildlife in Richmond Park, London. With that backdrop of birdsong, we discussed the importance of setting values, experience, loyalty, listening to learn, data and other key topics around performance and culture. We open up with a story Matt tells that was based at his time at Loughborough University, one of the world's greatest sporting institutions that has impacted both our lives. I mean, I was on a really steep learning curve when I arrived in Loughborough, actually. And what I realised was how much I didn't know. Yeah. And I found that out pretty quickly. I was working with some very experienced coaches who are kind of edgy as well, you know. So I kind of realised how much I didn't know. And I was actually speaking to one of them yesterday. We were reminiscing about the days at Loughborough and he was saying, you know, should we kind of change from how we were in those days in Loughborough? Because we were, you know, quite, not tough on the kids, but we had quite sort of set strict values that we wanted the kids to adhere to and discipline and all these things and hard work and setting standards, you know, like turning up on time and making sure they had the right equipment with them, all these sort of basic mm. things. But we were very tough on that, mm. you know. And uh, he was saying to me, well, you know, I, I was pretty tough on a kid the other day for doing those things and then got hauled into a meeting with parents and stuff. Because, you know, kids have seemed to have changed. Life's changed a bit in the last sort of, 10, 15 years. And I said to him, please don't ever change. Because it was because they indoctrinated me in that way. Yeah. And, and, I, and it was so good for me. The best thing for me. It was the best. If I hadn't had that kind of, for want of a better term, kick up the butt in that way there... I wouldn't, would not be the coach I am today. And if, if I'm any good today, I wouldn't be the coach I am today. And so I said to him, please don't ever lose that. Because when I see people, not, not for the sake of it, not you know, being gratuitously tough and mm. beating the chest, but setting standards and being strong on them. And I know it sounds like a basic principle, but actually I think that's getting tougher and tougher to be that way, actually, when, when working with kids especially. But probably senior athletes as well who maybe a bit more prima donna-ish now and aren't used to being spoken to in that way or being disciplined and people being tough on them. I suppose it depends what sport and culture you're in. No, it does. I mean, I'm, I've been, I've, I, was, I was chatting to a, a conditioner at one of the top football clubs in Europe and he talked about that struggle about how the star players were, were deciding almost everything as yeah. far as how hard they wanted to work, their workloads, their intensities, what they were prepared to do. Yeah. One of the things I, I suppose seeing your career progress is that those basics those foundations are absolutely central tenants to everything you do I call them black and white kind of guardrails so you just talked about that and that's something from day one that you saw as if you didn't have those do you think you'd be able to operate how you want to I think I would have made a lot of errors moving forward the better and better players and the older players that I work with as I progress through my career I think I would, have, I would have tripped up a lot of times because I would have shown bad values yeah. unknowingly. And, if, and I think if you show a senior athlete bad values yourself, they might not point it out. Some will, but they might not point it out, but they'll note it. Mm. And I think enough of those bad values, people start to think, you know what, I like this person, whatever, but I'm not so sure they're the person that I want to be working with. And, and something when I've then stepped down the levels since, you know, so any new business that I have where I'm working with players that aren't the very, very best. One of the things they and their parents point out is, oh, you've, you know, your, your professionalism, your values, you know, your, the things you clearly hold dear are clear to see. 
and so so I don't notice it in myself but other people might observe that in me and say you know look, you you have that level of profession that it's clearly just a given that you do certain things you know yeah. and so I think without knowing it that's really stood me well in my career I think you know and and, and don't get me wrong it was when I first got hit with these values it was quite a difficult kind of first year uh, you know I had many nights sort of just staring at the ceiling when I'd completely got something wrong you know even back to my very first team meeting there where the head coach basically said I was working at a centre where there was quite a prominent fitness trainer working with one of our best players was based there and the head coach said you know have you been watching that person work much have you learned much from him and you know I was a bit wet behind the ears and I kind of said well not really you know I've seen him do a few bits but you know I'm, I'm pretty confident in my own stuff anyway and the head coach absolutely ripped my head off it's like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, you've had this guy on your doorstep and you haven't tapped into him. Like, what are you doing? He didn't say it's nice or like that. <laughs> and that was my very first team meeting and um, kind of set the tone for the next year. And what they were doing was was setting my values, you know, mm. and, and making sure I was... They, they were doing it for the right reasons, you know, to develop me. But you were, you were open-minded enough to, to realise that... Um, aware, I guess, that that was something that you needed to improve upon. I mean, yeah. you you spent um, you spent a year in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia, yes, yeah. where where it sounds like you were in the corner of a lot of rooms, not <laughs> saying very much. Um, listening to listen to learn, would yeah. that be about right? Absolutely, yeah. And and that was something I was so keen to point out to them before I arrived, because I thought I was putting myself in the position of the people that I was going to go and observe to think, God, would I would want someone hassling me when I'm trying to get a day's work done. So, the, so my emails to them before I left was, look, you're not even going to notice I'm there. You know, I'm going to be in the corner. You know, I'm not going to disturb you. If you want me to pick a weight up and put it away, I'll do that. But, but just, just let me just come and stand in the corner of a room and then leave. And most of them didn't reply initially. So I sent them another email the week after which I think made them realise, okay, if I don't even reply, this guy's yeah. going to keep emailing me. Yeah. Um, which I'm probably making a mistake telling, saying this now because I'll probably get a bunch what, of emails. I was going to say, <laughs> have you had this? Has this come back to you? Have you had, you've had a request, I imagine? Yeah, I have. And um, it's something that I... It's really difficult because someone like an Andy who operates in such a, a closed kind of environment, it's really difficult to just allow people in to watch so I try and do it in other environments when I'm work, not working with Andy, you know, working with other juniors or, or even other senior players that aren't perhaps quite, um, I don't know, quite so kind of focused, I suppose, as, as Andy is in his environment, doesn't really want those distractions around. So I respect that. Uh, but it's also something I feel a bit guilty about that I'm not doing enough of as well because mm. people did open the door to me and help me in so many ways was so kind to me in so many ways and I do think I pay it forward when I'm in the right place at the right time with with younger coaches but it's just something that you just feel like you can never do enough of when people have been that kind to you I suppose in a way that makes sense and just just for the for the the listeners you'll already know this but the Andy that that we're talking about is Andy Murray Um, (laughs) and Matt's been Matt's been his conditioning coach for well over 11 years now and Andy Murray former number one multiple Grand Slam winner and um, and has also had this amazing journey really where he's been beset by injuries and yeah. um, and stuff that put him on the precipice will actually put him into retirement and then put him back so so you know a ton of stuff there that, that we can we can <laughs> yeah. climb into I guess but if we reverse a, li- a little bit about some of the stuff that we just talked about there um, and your journey as far as understanding what your core values are are they your foundations? What other foundations have you got in what you do? Yeah, I mean, I think getting your values right is, is, is step number one. But for, for me, where I feel like I have, I have succeeded in my career is I don't feel like I'm the smartest person in the room, but I feel like my soft skills are good. You know, people said this to me, you know, before that, you know, do elite athletes have people around them that are extremely knowledgeable or that they also are happy to be around and want to be around and of course there's elements of both of course you need to be you know competent and good at your job but but that that resonated with me a lot that how I am and how I behave and how easy I am to be around was for me actually as important if not more important than anything yeah Um, because I have seen a lot of practitioners who are brilliant minds but just no one wants to spend time with them um you know 
So that for me was a real priority. And so that's something that I've really paid attention to. As much as upskilling me in, in the hard skills of my job is I've really tried to pay attention to how I present myself, how I behave in different situations. Did you learn those soft skills? Is that something that you, that's just a personality trait that you've always been pretty good at getting on with people? Yeah, yeah I think it does, it does relate to my nature a little bit. It's something I, I wish, I think should be taught a bit more as well I think it's something we could talk about more why, why do you think it doesn't get taught as well I've got my own views but I'd love to hear yours <laughs> it's not that tangible I don't think yeah. because a lot of it is about feel in different situations and there's so many different elements that go into it and I know I know, I know that there is more talk about it in our industry now which is great but I don't think there I don't think we learn about it and, and I think the only way to do it is kind of role playing and situational things where you put people in situations and and ask them how they would react and set some rules for mm. certain situations. Mm. Team meetings, you know, one-on-one coffees, group coaching sessions, individual coaching sessions. What sort of rules would we adhere to depending on who you've got in front of you? And I also think it's depending on your experience too. So how you show up if you have no experience whatsoever but are keen but you're at the bottom of the ladder versus how you show up when you've been involved for 20 plus years are two different things and if the guy that's got no experience turns up as the 20 year guy everyone's they're going to get found out yeah and, and vice versa so I, there are lots of elements that go into it but they're not that tangible i guess it's why in the last i don't know 10 20 years maybe we've had the advances in sports science and it's come into probably as we when we were both studying that side of our degree yeah. is very different now to probably what they're teaching in the lecture theatres now but the, the non-tangible, the stuff that's harder to measure, which is around this kind of the art side of it, the yeah. art side of coaching, the feel, the softer skills, yeah. is that what we would, when, when often you get labelled experience, you've got experience, mm. is experience the ability to understand that, have that, I suppose, yourself, you know yourself a little bit more, yeah. and also you understand the various scenarios that are going to be popping up and you, don't, you take a breath. It's an easy throwaway to say, yeah, he's got a load of experience, obviously, because yeah. I know that you can see your track record. But tangibly, what does that mean? It is. It's, it's not being that kid that I was that turned up into that meeting and blurted out the line that I did. Yeah, it, it is that. Because, because I don't think my information has changed that much. Um, you know, people say that their work gets simpler. Mm. Well, you start simple because you don't know much. You get more complicated because you learn a bit, and then you get simpler because you realise actually a lot of that stuff's worth throwing away. Yeah, 100%. Um, but, but, but so, yeah, that, I think experience teaches you that as well to sort of get rid of a lot of the noise in your work. But it does allow you to play two or three moves ahead in situations. You, you see situations unfolding three or four iterations ahead of, of time, and then you, you, therefore you can predict and take action prior to that. Which then, like you say, people think, oh, wow, what, that guy's experienced, you know, how, how well he's seen that coming. But you've, you've only seen that coming because you've seen it a bunch of times before and probably been burnt the first time. So there is an element of soft skills and experience that is just going through it and making mistakes clearly. But like I say, I just feel like there's a mindset and values to people who don't have much experience that they could make fewer mistakes in that way and be better prepared for that. But then also to know as you go through your career okay, now I'm middle management level or now I'm senior management level, okay, what are the soft skills that are involved in that now? Because again, you know, that'll be the first time you've been a middle manager. What, how should I be in this situation? You know, how, should, how do I present myself to my, the team of staff that I manage but also the people that are managing me mm-hmm. in different situations? So just, yeah, I've had a lot of thought about that and, you know, put it down in paper and bits and bobs, but that, that's, that's how I feel... That's how I see soft skills, is that it is linked to, it is linked to your experience and, and, and how others may see you as well and have awareness of that, I guess. And one of the things that, for you, your experience has, has driven you towards is a, a greater understanding of workloads um, yes. with, with athletes. And just, I guess, to, to put it into simpler terms for those, those of you listening that aren't working in this in elite sport, but want to know more about high performance it's how much somebody really can can manage before you're starting to see decrements in performance and so it's into two you would you'd split i guess your workloads into two and external and internal yes absolutely yeah and yeah. 
before we had all the various technology that, that we'll come on to talk about, the GPS and the heart rate monitors and all this other stuff, was it your feel that told you when to stop and when to push? It, it was, but my voice probably wasn't loud enough as the S&C coach, strength and conditioning coach in that situation, that I might have felt that players were doing too much in my gut, but, but I couldn't prove it. And therefore, because I couldn't prove it, I've, I've often either mentioned it, but didn't really push on it. And that's a bit of a regret of mine looking back, actually, that, you know, I feel like, you know, my job was to look at the physical performance side of tennis. But so much of that is intertwined in how much volume that players do in their practice. Because if I take a player into the gym to get stronger, but they're already exhausted from a three hour tennis session, Mm. then actually that gym session is probably detrimental to that player. But I feel like I need my slice of the cake. So I then take them in there anyway anyway, and do my gym session. But actually, the, the best form of working is to have the conversation with the tennis coach to say, could you do a lighter day when I go into the gym? It's as simple as that. But I didn't have numbers to back it up. So to tell a tennis coach, look, you need to be doing less with your player when they're under pressure for results and improving technique and tactics and all these things is a very, very kind of weak argument in many respects. And, you know, anyone who's negotiated knows you've got to start with a position of strength. And certainly in my job, having facts and data to back that up is invaluable, really. And I think people shy away from data a little bit, you know, because they think it can get overcomplicated and, and ruin the art of coaching. But for me, that's not the point of it at all. It's, it's to have some facts. I had an interesting conversation with a coach the other day about the, the data that I collect in tennis. Simply saying, you know, you need a harder day followed by a lighter day or two hard days followed by a lighter day. Simple as that, the conversation. And he said to me, don't you think that that's something that good coaches kind of do? Don't you think that's good, something that good coaches kind of know already? And that hit me a little bit because no one has said that to me before. And I thought, yes and no, because good coaches would feel it, but I think you need to know how hard is a hard day mm. in, a, in a number, one number, how hard is a hard day and how light is a light day, you know, just to have that conversation more accurately. Because very often in tennis, if we do things by numbers, if we just say uh, by minutes, excuse me, right, we'll do a three-hour session today and we'll do a one-hour session tomorrow. What generally tends to happen is if the player knows they're only playing for one hour, they will bomb around the court for an hour as fast as they can and probably do more work in that one hour than the three-hour session where they have a good long chat between drills and all these things. So again, that one-hour light day actually isn't a light day at all. And what do you end up with when you never have light days? (laughs) Burnout and injury. So... And I, I try and distill these conversations as simple as possible because they really aren't complicated. You know, heart rates, internal um, measures or player load and external measures really are about having simple conversations around what is hard and what is easy. Do you think it accelerates sometimes then making informed decisions? I mean, I can think in rugby how, and we still do it, you'll have a, a captain's run day before a game, maybe, and it's supposed to be a light run where it's unopposed and, and they'll run through their moves. But when you actually look at the data, you actually you can you can actually see what's going on. The decelerations yep. that they have, so many of them, that's putting a massive strain on your hamstrings and your glutes and stuff that then can potentially increase the risk of a hamstring injury at the weekend. Yep. But the the thought was, well, it's a nice easy session, so of course we're not going to get a soft tissue injury on Saturday. And they didn't have the either the understanding or the facts or the data. Yeah. So would you say that at the moment we, one of the things that's now creeped in? Probably I started using GPS in 2007 in rugby. Yeah. It's a long time ago and, and our physio kind of immersed himself in understanding as much as he possibly could. Yeah. Now, for those of you that are unaware about GPS, whenever you're watching pretty much most sports now, there'll be a, a little kind of bulge at the back, the, the nape of a neck, I guess, is yeah. where most, most of them are housed now because they capture GPS from various satellites around the world and, and they give you information. And that information at the start when you turn it on there's about 100 pages and most of it if you've never used it before I imagine Matt like I didn't have a clue and so you stick to your like let's find out how far they've run how fast they've run and then maybe getting well how many meters per minute which in rugby was pretty important acceleration decelerations which I know you're you're really into we hadn't really got our heads around at that point because we kind of didn't quite 
didn't quite know enough about them. That information now, do you see that as a as an increase in in high performance? And if you didn't have it, are you suddenly going to be a, um, is is it going to impact on on Andy's performance? Andy's very data driven. He's a very okay. data driven person. Um, when he's preparing for a match, you know, he will want to see reports on the opponent, where they serve at certain times, um, you know what their tactical strengths and weaknesses are he will have a good idea of that himself and he'll figure things out during but a part of the the thing that maybe settles his nerves before a match is to be informed about these things other players don't want to see a single stat and he wants to see all of them and pick out the best ones and so so again for me to use that data in his training is essential at certain times Mm. Uh, and this is where there's a really fine balance with this um, that every practitioner in sport will, will be aware of is that you can throw the baby out with the bathwater by using these things and let the data become your master you know, and be completely driven by data which puts off, t- off tennis coaches, it puts off S&C coaches as well because if you're turning up saying well, how many, how many metres are we allowed to do today on your machine you know, Andy calls it my mate. What does your mate tell me I'm allowed to do today? You know, sarcastically. Um, and so, it happens though, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, all the time, yeah. yeah. And so, for me, there's particular times to drop it in and learn from it. And then you put it away and say, okay, we've learned that lesson now. Does everyone agree? Yeah, okay, we'll move on and just work without it. And, and that's, that's that balance. Yeah, and so you would know, I guess, if you're... It would be obvious to most people if, if Andy was wearing it in a, in a game. Yeah. You'd be there'd be some some information there that you'd be using to give him feedback and and work out how much load then goes into the gap between the games and, and stuff like that. Yeah. In training for somebody that that perhaps hasn't used it before, what would be a key advantage? What would be if you had to put it in most simplest terms that GPS unit gives you that that we wouldn't have had ten years ago? It's just pretty much how difficult the session was on your body, on your joints and your muscles essentially. So if you go for a run and you feel particularly sore after a run versus doing a slightly different run the other the, the day before and you don't feel sore at all and just kind of wondering exactly why that is, then getting some, again, getting some facts and some data about just how much impact your body went through during that time or how, how fast you were going is a really key piece of information for you to know that for next time. Mm. Not to say you won't go on that run again, but you'll be better prepared. And you mm. probably won't be as sore next time you do it anyway because of adaptation, but at least you'll have a knowledge that that is the run that makes you sore. Therefore, what at what time in the week should I drop that run in because I really feel that run's beneficial for me? And there'll be certain days when I definitely don't want to do that run and feel sore the next day. Yeah. So it's just to have that planning element around your training based on just a few sort of simple facts really and will andy andy will question your data i i'm uh, sounds sounds like he (laughs) he goes hard to that how do you find that is that some coaches don't like to be questioned um in my experience the better ones like it um and i've always kind of said that um the measure of a good coach is how well they can coach the superstars you know the ones that in team sports they're often maybe the mavericks or the ones that are outspoken yeah but if you can manage that relationship well, then generally speaking, it's, you, you probably know what you're, know what you're doing. Yeah. How do you manage that relationship with the questioning? You know what, earlier in my career, and actually probably relatively recently, I would have had a lot of sort of internal resistance to those questions, even though I'd have answered them and appreciated the fact that the athlete cares enough to ask the question. So there is a good element to that questioning. I'd have had a lot of internal resistance to it. You know, my ego would have been a bit battered. Why isn't he just accepting what I'm saying? You know, why is he challenging me in this way? Is he doubting me as a person, as a Mm. practitioner? And it it pokes your ego a little bit. And I think the more experience that I've got, you kind of let go of that resistance a little bit. And it's not so much about judging you as a person and you as a practitioner, but it's just someone asking a question about the data that they're being given you know one of the coaches said to us the other day you know it's it's very easy to be hard on someone else's body and that's uh you know that resonated with all of us as a team actually and um and so actually that's what it's all about is andy saying are you taking care of my body my instrument that that is so important to everything i do and so if that's the case it's not it's not about me it's not something personal it's not a personal slight or insult and so if I, can let, if I let go of my ego in that situation and just be kind of quite kind of loose with it, 
an answer in a very open, honest way because often the answer is I don't know. And I'll. Are you, I'll what, are you scared out. of saying that? I used to be really scared of it. I used to be really scared of it. And now I say it so often, it, I wonder if I'm any good at what I do. <laughs> because so often I just don't know. But feeling okay to say I don't know is, is something, again, that experience has taught me. Because goodness knows I've tried to blag it and got found out. And that's so embarrassing when that does happen. And again, experienced and elite people spot it within a millisecond of it happening. Yes. So very often it's kind of like, I'll think of a good answer an hour later and I know I'm probably going to think of a good answer an hour later so just buying myself that time to say look okay Andy you know that's that's actually a really valid point Mm. I don't I don't know do you think the the rest of of the group in the in the multidisciplinary team so you know you have a couple of physios that work alongside you as well as Jamie Delgado the the coach and then you have various bolt-ons like sports psychologists as well as Andy do you think they know that that's your style, that you sometimes take a little bit of time just to ruminate, work things out? Yeah, and it really takes the sting out of the tail of those conversations, especially like, you know, it's a harsh environment. You know, if you're under the pump, everyone will jump in and put you under the pump as well, yes. you know, because that's just the way it is. If the yeah. physio's under the pump about an injury, we'll all be, we'll all be hammering him in a nice way yeah. and supporting him behind the scenes as well. But, you know, it's a bit of, little bit of fun as well. But, but it... it I don't know, this sounds a bit a bit out there, but you know, I, remember, I, I did about two months of Aikido training when I was younger, and the, the principle of that was if someone pushes you, you pull, right. rather than push back. Yeah. And, and, and I very often have that approach to these conversations. If someone says, yeah, that data's no good, it's told me this, and I don't even think it's accurate, my answer will be, yeah, you, 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 actually, you, yeah, you, you might be right, actually. We, this might not be spot on you know it's telling us this is this how we feel but you you know what I think you could be right but but I'll, I'll have a look at it and we'll have another conversation perhaps this afternoon or tomorrow and, and that just takes the sting out the tail of that conversation a bit so it isn't this me pushing against them sometimes there are conversations when you say no no I'm drawing the line I'm pushing back today I'm not having this today this data's correct and I'm on it and, and it's really important that we implement this data today for the safety of the player and for the for the benefit of the program and the training week. Yeah, that makes sense. I I, I remember as a when I, my early years before, when I finished playing rugby, I was a teacher and I was trying to get sports science in as an A level and I just started the curriculum and it was in a very traditional school where they just thought, well, you know, how can you get an A level from running around in a gym? <laughs> and so you had to kind of surreptitiously just kind of leave the curriculum around the anatomy and physiology pages around in the staff rooms so you'd get some curious questioning then about the curriculum to try to get buy-in yeah and and have you had to do that with some of your processes try to have a bit of an education piece so that they buy in and then connect what you're doing to their performance yeah i mean for, for me the best way to have done it with someone like an andy is for him to think that it was his idea yeah um so we had a situation once where we were trying to, much earlier in his career, we were trying to get him to wear cycling shorts uh, to protect his groin. You know, if there's any truth to that, who knows? But we were trying to get him to wear cycling shorts to play matches in. Uh, we went out and bought him a whole bunch of pairs of cycling shorts. This was in Australia. Bought him a whole bunch of pairs, left them in his hotel room, didn't open the box, didn't, didn't wear a single pair. He might have worn one pair begrudgingly, but then didn't re- use them for the rest of the tournament. We never mentioned it again. A year later to the day we turned up at that tournament and he turned up with a bunch of cycling shorts. No one had asked him to, no one had mentioned it. And that just stuck in my mind Mm. of like, he owns that decision, Mm. therefore he's going to implement it. If I come to him with something that's going to change the way he does things, his first response is probably going to be, well it's definitely going to be to question it and will probably be to push back on it. Why should I change what I'm doing? I've been pretty successful doing what I'm doing anyway. Why should I change? So if you know you're gonna meet that resistance, you're either gonna to have to go full bore head to head, where there's only one winner there anyway. So actually you either go full bore head to head or you just drip feed little bits over time, play the long game with it, and eventually hope 
that he adopts it himself as his idea and comes in the next day and says, this is actually, I think this is a really, really good idea. It sounds oversimplistic and it, that I am being a bit, um, that's not exactly how it goes, but, but those are the basic principles of it, is drip feeding little bits of information that over time gather momentum in his mind or the team's minds that actually this might be a really good idea. And if you do that, I feel like the right occasion will present itself mm. where it will be the obvious course of action mm. down the line. Yeah. And then everyone goes, yeah, OK, now's the time to do that. Have you got any good examples where there's something that, that you've, you've really been keen to embed and gain confidence that what you're doing is right and you've seen it? There's been, there's, it's, kind of, it's happened in front of your eyes that I suppose will always accelerate buy-in if they can practically see yeah actually you've done this to me i've done that i've i've suddenly won this because of that change the gps thing is interesting actually because we'd been using it a bit in training before and his kind of key injuries but then um, when he had the injury monitoring his loading on court became really important you know me- measuring the amount of impact going through a metal hip you know is really important yeah. to do um, for the other structures around it um, so we also measure his maximum speeds and things as well. So, so during the injury, when we've kind of been pushing him to be as quick as he can be and, and kind of recognise, is he quick enough to return to competition? That piece of technology has really helped us in him saying to me, OK, Matt, I need to know how fast I am before I go out there and compete and, and kind of gain confidence from that. So, so using, using the tool in that way has been really quite beneficial for, for Bayern in, in, in that respect and his confidence in going out on the match court knowing, okay, you know, I know I'm quick enough, I can do this. Yeah. So it was very useful for that, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you've mentioned it a couple of times now where you've either have been really well prepared for something and that's given you confidence yeah. or you've had the information that's also added to that. Would you say it's kind of... I always talk about trying to get athletes that are overcompetent so that you know they have that skill set and that knowledge that that whatever gets thrown at them is pretty bomb proof. Yeah. Um, when you get that, so occasionally you can get overconfident because exactly you think you can everything's covered. How do you manage that? Yeah, well, I can tell you a time when it's gone <laughs> gone quite badly. Um, so you know, I'm usually the pe- the person who's coming to the team with some gadgets, you know, trying something new. Yeah. Yeah, just to put pushing the edge of technology a little bit and so I had a a medicine ball which kind of measured velocity and you know power through throwing the medicine ball which for tennis if I could figure out or get some data on Andy's kind of power in throwing the ball uh, and I could say to him okay let's you know you want to get a bigger forehand let's say well then if you start throwing this ball with more velocity and I'm getting data on my on my iPad that's telling me you are you know we're improving here so it was I was so it was like the holy grail for me this piece of kit mm. I was so pumped to use it and I bought it to a tournament I charged it up I didn't practice with it first I didn't even really kind of go into using it properly first I bought it out just in the car park of the tournament with the the head coach who was there the physio and Andy and I was like guys I've got this really great piece of kit I'm desperate for us to use it and they're like okay let's let's see it anyway they started throwing this medicine ball around in the way that it isn't supposed to be used they were doing this big tennis kind of loop to throw it and which was freaking the medicine ball out and I was getting these really ridiculous bits of data from it which they obviously completely destroyed they were like Matt what are you talking about this is absolute rubbish like no chance we ever use this again like forget it you know and I was so angry because it was the holy grail for me for a piece of data or something that could inform our practice more I'd been complacent in just assuming that they were going to buy into it because why wouldn't they it was going to give us all all the information we needed and they absolutely destroyed it and I couldn't I couldn't use it again there was no comeback from that no comeback if I even unzip my bag if it's even in my bag you're getting getting rinsed yeah so you know I was so devastated by that (laughs) because it was so important to me um and yeah that was kind of that was a a big lesson for me it changed your behaviors then going forward and, and, and did you feel a lot of athletes uh, you talk to some of the stuff that they want is the simple things they want information about why they're doing what they're doing and they want to see their plans they want to know what's happening for the week Mm. so that they're informed and sometimes it's not because they want to have a day off or know when it is it's because they want to feel as though they're part of it they've got some autonomy in all of this yeah um is that something when you're talking about your 
the multidisciplinary teams. You've, there's been lots of head coaches that you've worked with now, and and actually there's been a lot of change. You've been, you and Andy have probably been the two constants, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, that for me has two two questions: Why have you lasted so long, and how have you managed to integrate all the changes when they come to still make sure that everyone's functioning to the best of their ability? Yeah, good questions. I again, I I, I feel like come back to those soft skills that feel element I feel like I've survived with Andy because I've known how to be in each situation you know I there's times to just belt up and stand at the back of the room and watch things and there's times to kind of lead by example there's times to put an arm around everybody in the team and there's times when I've needed an arm put around me Um, and so having a feel for that and knowing when those situations are the case is, is something that I think I've done well I've also just got this thing about my personality where I'm just not gonna, unless someone literally says, look, go, I don't want you around anymore. I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm turning up every day. I'm showing up. Yeah. You know, and to be honest, even if Andy said, I don't want you around anymore, I'd probably show up the next day anyway. (laughs) That might get you in in trouble with (laughs) the authorities. Yeah, I'm just talking. (laughs) But but I just have this thing where I'm just not walking away from from this from this job and. um, and I guess that's a, a kind of a testament to my my kind of working relationship with Andy, but it's also my personality as well. Is that that come rain or shine, thick or thin, I'm I'm turning up. So you're a loyal person. Yeah, as well. that's a, that's one of my biggest values, I would say. What happens when somebody loyalty. when someone is disloyal to you? Yeah, I, I probably am more sensitive to that than anything. Um, that that hits me quite hard. I, I guess in some respects, in, you know, in a cynical way, that is that can happen more often than not in, in the world today. But especially when I have when when I see team members that don't have loyalty as a value, which doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Mm. That I see as a real red flag, like a big red flag, because especially working in a small team around one person for so long, that balance of relationships between all of you is so easily tipped in the wrong direction with one person who has the wrong agenda it can absolutely destroy things and it takes months if not years to rebuild relationships yeah whenever you have someone who just isn't quite on the same page it always costs one person in the team their job as well they always take one person with them do you know what i mean yeah i do yeah it, it kind of they what, it hits one person hardest. The ripple. And, it, and yeah. it, someone goes, a good person goes. And that's the tragedy for me. And for me, I've always thought I'm never going to be that good person that gets taken with them. I'm turning up. No yeah. matter how acidic this situation may or may not be, I'm coming, I'm turning up. Have you got, have you got any, anything now that you, you would have had experiences where, mm. where you've had to deal with those, and I'm sure learned from them? Yeah. Do you have any warning signs now, anything that you can see there's something coming here that we need to head off here you know what it's an interesting one but the private chat with the athlete is always an interesting one for me now of course there's always situations where people should have one-to-one private chats with it with athletes of course there is every practitioner needs that that one-to-one relationship that coffee or whatever that that chat in the hotel room where no one else is there and you have a heart-to-heart and you never know when those moments are going to come that's not what I'm talking about here talking about the person who comes in and immediately pulls the athlete to one side and wants a little bit of a, you know this it's about you and me here mm. I'm the person who's going to make the difference here that for me is a bit of a red flag you know yeah I was chatting to them the other day just me and them and actually he said this about you or what you know or, or whatever or he said about it's usually he said this about another person in the group yeah all those little red flags for me are instant no, that's not happening. Sorry, that's not happening. And I'd, I'd happily go out on a limb in that situation, say, no, no, we, this isn't how we're going to operate. Even if that was, even if that then cost me my role, hopefully I've been around long enough for that not to happen now. But, that, but I think people involved see the good side of that. Everyone else sees the good side of that, that you're saying that for the right reasons. And that actually in the long run, that's going to work out correctly. Even if the... The person involved who's doing that can see that. If they're aware enough to see that, which some of them are and mm. change quickly, some of them aren't, then that's a red flag and that's something that I would, I would, I would raise. And, and the thing is for me is that I know the cyclical nature of these things because I've seen so many cycles. We all have seen so many cycles mm. in our roles that you know that it's going to come back around. 
and I just my 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 core philosophy is outlast them. I'm going to outlast these well, people. <laughs> as you as you began talking about that, you, your body language changed. You, your shoulders got a little bit <laughs> higher. You puffed your chest out a bit more, and your focus became a bit more laser-like. And it it was um, it's obviously something that you strong think strongly about. You know, yeah. and I I use the phrase the standard you walk past is the standard that you become. And yeah. if you're prepared to let those things, you don't do anything about them then that's everyone's standard and that becomes our lowest standard and yeah. uh, we t- mentioned this a million times to to people before but we've always always said with all the teams that if you don't win that key tournament that you want to win it's not because somebody dropped the ball or, or missed tackle it's something you didn't do six months earlier and yeah. and, it, and it eventually catches up with you and it's only when your athletes and the people around you realize that it's about that consistent behavior I might be wrong here but just just seeing your reaction to that that's 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 hardwired for you that ain't ever going to change no and isn't it funny you know you talk about the you know your team's performances and things you kind of know when good performances are coming don't you because because the right things have been in place for long enough that you've built some momentum behind it and and everything's singing mm. and 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 you also know the opposite you know when just nothing's quite going right like you say the the, the atmosphere isn't right you know amongst everyone who's working the training isn't quite right for all manner of different reasons. The, the, the player isn't in the right mindset. You just know when they're going to perform well because all those things have been in place for, such a, for, for a period of time where you know it's going to sing. Like Great performances very rarely come out of nowhere, do they? Yeah, they, no. it's, they, yeah. they, they they're built yeah. over a long period of time. Do you sense that yeah. at, when you're in the moment? Because it's very easy for all of us to retrospectively go, oh, I can see why that didn't work because we didn't yeah. do that, didn't do that, didn't do that. And, and the opposite, if, if we've had a good performance. Do you now, can you see it unfolding in front of you? Yeah, and, and, but sometimes, even though you know it, you can't break it either. You know that the things aren't right with the team or the training isn't quite right because of one reason or another. But actually, you can't break it. And that's one of the most frustrating things, that for what one reason or another, that bad stuff has a momentum of its own as well that's really quite difficult to, to break sometimes. You know, and then it hits rock bottom and then you've got your chance to rebuild. Mm. And sometimes, you, again, you just have to let something play out until it goes rock bottom because you know that by fighting it at the wrong time in the process isn't going to work, probably makes things worse anyway. And it's so... People who don't work in elite sport, I don't know, who work in building sites or whatever, will say, look, just tell the geezer. You know, just tell him he's doing this, that and the other and then sort it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you're like... And you're like, I, I love, I love that, but also it just isn't that simple in elite sport. You know, I can't just necessarily walk in one day and tell the geezer that yeah. he's doing something wrong, or that the culture isn't right, or the attitude isn't right. Sometimes because it will affect what both your relationship and also ultimately his performance. Yeah, the long-term good of saying that on that day isn't there. That you know, you're bang for buck for saying it on that day. So timing of these messages is like is everything to me. That you kind of know a situation isn't right, but you've got to let it play out. Because okay, you know, let's some, something isn't right in the team, um, and I I pick the wrong moment to say it. Everyone in the team might just think that I'm defending my own position and I'm just trying to save my own hide for self-preservation which isn't necessarily the case like we talked about you know the 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 poisonous practitioner or whatever you know if I just jump in right at the start to Andy and say or to whoever it is I'm working with and say this person's poisonous this isn't right he might think well well yeah you know Matt's threatened by this person because they're doing something a bit different and he probably might feel like he might lose his job it threatens him and so I've lost the argument hands down. What I've actually done is strengthen that other person's position even more. Mm-hmm. So to have those conversations actually behind the scenes a little bit and say, go to that person as an individual away from Andy or with the team, but away from Andy or whoever it is we're working with and tackle it in that way or wait for it to play out. Even if there's some, sh- some short-term pain with that is better than sticking your kind of you know, you're lying in the sand there yeah. with everyone. So I've probably contradicted myself in some ways because... No, it make, it makes sense. And I think we bounced around a lot um, and we talked about it 
we've mentioned it is the ego um, because often that's your it's that control between that that higher more sensible self yeah. against the lower more emotional self yeah. um, and with with anything in elite sport but particularly when you're with an individual athlete where it's easy uh, in team sports for me if if somebody makes a mistake in the game there's every chance that you might over 80 or 90 minutes clamber that back and recover that and yeah. um but but in your world it can be that a you know, something that's gone wrong or mismanagement of that athlete or a conversation that wasn't had that should have been had mm. can absolutely derail your campaign mm. um, how have you managed because we've all got egos all yeah. to lesser extents and and certainly as, as as younger coaches mine went through the roof until I realized that it was often making decisions that were totally the wrong ones yeah. but but you want to kind of prove yourself and show that you, what you can do works yeah. how do you manage your ego yeah lots of kind of internal conversations with myself in hotel rooms <laughs> uh, has happened um, I think I'm better at letting it go than other people I still it takes me some time to let it go I'm better but I'm better than others at, do, at, at letting it go I recently uh, read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle yeah, it's a great book. unbelievable yeah. you know flipped me literally flipped me from one day to the other but just letting go of that egoic state, letting go of it, because what does it really, that particular moment, what does mm. it really matter? What mm. matters is right now, you know. Anyway, I won't, I won't, you know, incorrectly quote him, but that was a real kind of moment for me, actually, even in my personal relationships at home. Winning the argument at home, letting go of that was massive. Yeah. It was, and, 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 and I, I recognise that in myself as well throughout my career, that there's been certain arguments that I've just let go of because I'm not going to win them. It's more damaging for me to keep fighting them. So actually just let it let it go, let it be. And if it plays out for, for the better, if you were wrong and it plays out for the better anyway, well, that's great, that's a bonus. If it plays out, not in a passive-aggressive way, but if it plays out badly and it all goes belly up and you were proven to be right, well, that's not a good result, but... but it was going to happen anyway. It need it probably needed to play out that way for us to move on from it. Would you give any tips to any any coaches or leaders on how they can manage their ego? I think to have that that conversation with yourself, and first and foremost, be aware that it's your ego jumping up and down. Have an awareness in that moment. Practice it. Have an awareness in that moment. Is this my ego that's being poked here? Is my resistance to this and what I'm saying? because it's my ego screaming and shouting and, it, and it's not actually what's best for the, the situation. And what would happen when, um, when it's the athlete that you know it's their ego talking and it's, and it's not their higher self? Yeah, there's a real patience around that. And actually it's, it's great to have an understanding of that as well. Kind of like I said about trying to create buy-in about a piece of equipment or some data there's an ego around uh, or letting go of your ego with it but also recognizing the ego of the athlete and how's my how is what I'm presenting here impacting that that person's ego we had it recently with uh, with a bike session you know and we're trying to get more power output in the bike and then we changed bikes and it was giving him a different reading you know and I'm like well you've clearly lost power you know knowing that it was a different bike yeah. but he was like no we need to go and find the bike that I was on because I haven't lost that much power. I'm telling you I haven't, you know I haven't. So off I went and found the bike that he was on before. I know that's his ego and I know his ego is so important to him serving for a Grand Slam that for me to poke and prod that, you can use it to your advantage as well, of course. Bet you can't do that, bet you can't do this. So they do it. Mm. Of course you can use that to your advantage as well. But also, you don't want to remove that or or devalue that in any way because it's exactly what makes him who he is. And when we, when we talk about that, the the physical workloads that that we can now measure, the internal and the external ones, yeah. that emotional that emotional workload, you know, you, you can say on the GPS. Well, obviously, 
um, sitting still on a plane or traveling or having a, a difficult conversation from an in, from the external workload it's very low yeah. but that could be just as detrimental to performance as something that's going on externally as yeah. far as you know the, the amount of work you're doing on the court how do you it's harder to measure but Wish how we important can measure that. well I'm, I'm <laughs> we're all working on that <laughs> and when we come up with it yeah oh my goodness i, I mean that I think it's why performance directors are often data guys, sports scientists, that you don't normally get the softer skilled people in those roles because those skills are harder to measure. Yeah. Um, and we have talked about that, but I just it, it'd be interesting to hear, has there ever been an occasion where you've had all your plans, you've mm. got all your data, but then what you're seeing mm. is providing a different picture and that's the one that you go with? Yeah, I mean, Andy will always try and prove data wrong anyway. Again, that's his nature. Um, wouldn't want to change it. And so, yeah, he he. There's been times when I think, oh my goodness, he's he's really not going to perform well today from a physical perspective. You know, based on what the data is showing me. But actually, you can't account for match day performers. You just can't. Mm. Uh, and he he is one of the greatest examples in our sport of match day performers. You know, in in the in the build up to a major event he might his practice sets might not have been that great sometimes they might be better than others but they might not have been that great but that has absolutely no bearing on his performance in that tournament at all and and the same with physical data as well mm. he may have just been subconsciously holding himself back actually and so you can't for me to go and present him data that's poor before a major event would be a mistake one because of course it has knock-on effect for confidence but two because it's probably not reflective of what he's actually going to do out there anyway you know he this this guy just gets up for big tournaments mm. and events as all the great players do in every sport uh, and he will completely and utterly outperform practice and data in those moments so actually do you embrace that is that is that is that one of your um parts of your job that you you find fascinating because it's yeah you know gives you all sorts of things to to work on it just makes me grin in yeah. the stands watching it as well you know you're just like this is just so different to what i've been seeing the last few days or even 10 minutes before in the warm-up yeah you know i've seen him look absolutely horrible in warm-ups and then go out and perform in front of thousands of people against a tough opponent and absolutely dismantle them and and half an hour before was looking horrendous like truly you know and that doesn't happen often but it happens yeah and you don't panic i guess because you've seen it and you understand it but one of the one of the other things i guess we haven't talked about too much and i don't, I don't want to spend a long time on it but are they those moments are they where you get your satisfaction from you know why you why you do what you do yeah i mean every week's filled with moments like that actually um i think i do what i do as well because of the relationships of the people that i have involved as well you know um, I think if I quit this job, I'd, you know, I think a lot of people say that they miss the locker room. I, I would miss the relationships more than anything. More than you know, the, the the big tournaments are great to go and see them perform. Of course they are, but it is that day-to-day -day struggle and when things go right and when it all clicks and when you're all working off the same singing off the same hymn sheet and and you can see progress happening. You're all you know, you, you build that momentum. Those are the real, the real buzz moments. And then, of course, okay, yes, you then see the performance. Um, but sometimes that happens, you don't get what you want. Mm. He doesn't get what he wants in the, co the competition. So actually, it's, it, is that, it is the relationships and the process, actually, that's the fun part um, for me. Because actually, the performance is all about him. He is the performer. You know, he brings that, that additional X factor to matches. Uh, that's him. That's that's not. Uh, that's nothing to do with us as a team. Do you hang on to though? If if you've had a disappointment, um, does that linger for a long time for you? Do you, you? I mean, is it? Does it? Does it trail into every every other part of your life? Yeah, I think particularly when the process is bad, that's when it hurts. I think obviously when Andy loses a match, he's hurting a lot. We are disappointed as a team. Um, but the very first rule of that is show up again. Yeah. turn up in the locker room straight after and be there don't go and hide be, be seen you don't even have to say anything but be seen but anyway you know 
it's more when the process is out you know the times in, in Andy's documentary where he was injured for you know for so long going home was I was just horrendous to be around because just nothing's going right you know everything you're trying isn't working mm. um, and it just it, it, it I don't know it's this constant doom that's just there with you at work every day you we're all turning up every day six seven hours worth of stuff longer sometimes and there's this doom in the room about it you know which is just you then go home and you're just not a nice person to be around because because it's so all-consuming you can't snap out of it and it's hard would you say it's hard then to have too many interventions because it kind of is what it is yeah yeah that's the thing you know we we've had different experts come in and with each new expert there's new there's new optimism there's a new approach so oh okay yeah we hadn't thought about that let's try that this could work okay this is looking a bit better Mm. you know and then potentially a few months later you're back in that doom room again you know and that's that's a tough process Mm. that is it's tough for the athlete but Andy actually said and it sounds a bit self-absorbed but Andy said after the documentary I didn't really reflect on how much it was impacting the team because obviously he's pretty miserable to be around understandably but we're also going through the same misery and uh, and he he hadn't accounted for how it was impacting on us as individuals and a group as well and it's why in many ways taking my wife to watch the the documentary you know at the at the first screening of it that was a really nice moment as well because she could actually see me coming home moaning about one more degree of hip extension and and hanging on that to be the worst thing that's happened in the world um she could see the process that we all went through you know because she, she doesn't really feel how real it all is when you're going in each day and you know you're pushing and pulling a, a joint around and chucking a medicine ball around or whatever it is you know trying to get this last little bit so that he can go and perform again yeah. You know, they don't they don't feel our real they don't see those conversations on a daily basis. They just hear, How was it today? Yeah, not much better, you know, I'm not sure how where this is going. Oh you know, gloom and doom, you know. And when you say that to someone over three months and six months and nine months, in the end they're like, Oh shut up about the blooming hit. I'm sick of talking about the it doesn't, hit. It doesn't matter how good that song is, but if you hear it every day, <laughs> exactly, eventually yeah. you're bored of it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great documentary. I I, I loved it and um and you know anyone that's listening to this podcast they really should uh, give it a go on on prime video it's it's terrific um i've got one more question really for you if for what for any reason you were no longer part of that journey anymore um what do you think they would miss what would be the one thing that that you're providing that 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 wouldn't be there anymore i like to think that i'm the glue that sticks it together that sticks the various parts together mm. that i'm the constant Yep. I like to think I've been that for Andy yeah. down the, the last goodness knows how many years of course it <laughs> my ego you know, wouldn't fall apart of course it wouldn't you know when I'm not there the team operates perfectly but I like to feel like when I am there that yeah, that, I, that I keep things together I stick things together we, we informally counsel each other you know I feel like I do that well with the team you know in, I, I listen to, the, to what's going on they listen to me I feel like that works well when I'm there and I feel like that's for the better for Andy so that's I guess what I feel that they may miss if I wasn't there mm. but yeah but with the with the restrictions we've had I haven't been able to be there actually a lot of the time recently at, at the big events and um, and it's funny when you're in it and you're going to these events and you're stressed about the process and how's he going to perform and all these things and you oh this this tournament's a real pain because he's always stressed here you know when you're not there God, you do miss it and so you always want what you can't have, don't you? But um, yeah. but it's really made me appreciate Andy's injury, and of course, the pandemic has really made me appreciate, and it's made all of us appreciate what we what we had. It's been a real privilege to chat to you, Matt. So thank you very much. I've loved it. Thanks so much thank for having you. me, Ben. Conversations like these are one of the reasons I started this podcast: descending into these gold mines with fellow coaches, often from different sports in different worlds, and just chatting swapping notes and sharing our networks. With Matt, we covered a range of topics here in his journey and how he's evolved reminds us all of the importance of awareness and being in the present. It's very easy in in all we do to just move forward. 
But the key is to make sure that you're also looking up, learning, evolving, molding. Matt has done that really well. We also talked a lot about data. And I think my takeaway for this is you get information, you get data to make decisions. That data can come from a ton of different places. Some of them literally will have a number attached to them. Other stuff will be things you see and the conversations you have, or maybe even the gut feels that just tap away at your intestines. You use that data to come to decisions. The quality of all of that information is going to drive how much risk and how much pace are in those decisions. That's the secret source that the top coaches like Matt excel in and help Andy consistently be his best with skill. Matt's website is matt-littleonline and he's on Twitter at, at mattlittles Plus, he's got a book coming out on the 10th of June called The Way of the Tortoise, which I'm sure is going to be a great read. And if you haven't watched it yet, the documentary on Amazon Prime featuring Andy Murray entitled Resurfacing is out now and really is a top-class watch. The show notes will also provide more details and relevant links to anything we signposted or referenced. And you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. And please press that subscribe button on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. Finally, it makes a big difference to get us noticed and help more people find us if you head to Apple to leave a review about the podcast. Thank you to all of those that have done that so far. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Podcast.